This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. I strive to make this podcast a safe and inclusive place for my listeners. If I've missed any content warnings, please let me know. Content warnings for this episode include strong language, mature themes, and discussions of violence and murder. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 271. Hey there, folks. Welcome to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. This is the show where I share my fiction with you and tell you what's new with my life and my writing. So let's get started, shall we? Here is this week's story. Today I'm bringing you Chapter 12 in my Metamore City novel, Making the Cut. If you're new to the show, go back to Episode 259 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. Daniel's team has succeeded in smuggling their client's package out of the Skyport, but things got much messier than they had been hoping for. As Daniel and Victor made their way down to the port with the box, they discovered that their cargo tender had been hijacked by two enemy operatives. One of these men shot Victor twice, leaving him maimed and bleeding out on the floor of the shuttle. They then swiftly killed the two mercenaries that Victor had brought with him to guard the package. Daniel tried his best to stop the thieves, but he was outnumbered and outgunned. He surrendered, and they agreed to let him go tend to Victor in exchange for giving up his gun and the package. While the thieves passed the package down to their accomplice in the skyport below, Daniel used his psychic healing talent to save Victor's life. He exhausted himself in the process of healing Victor's injuries, and thus could do nothing to stop him when Victor went after the thieves with a handful of deformed bullets. Victor's telekinesis took the men by surprise, and his ability to form a psychokinetic shield protected him from their return fire. Soon, both of the thieves lay dead, but not before Daniel witnessed one of them using telekinesis in a psychic tug-of-war with Victor. Daniel realized, to his horror, that Victor had just killed another Psy, a crime that carries the death penalty in the Psy Collective, and one for which Daniel was now an accomplice. If anyone in the Hive ever finds out the truth, Daniel is a dead man. Unbeknownst to Daniel, however, the situation is even worse than it appears, because the men Victor killed are two of his oldest friends, Del Matthews and Trey Sumbara, their true appearance hidden beneath disguise charms. Daniel and Victor were under disguise enchantments of their own, so Del and Trace never knew that the men they were fighting were their old Skyball captain and the Hive's liaison for the elite MID PsyOps team. In last week's episode, while Daniel and Victor dealt with the mess aboard the cargo tender, Fiona tried to get the package out of the Skyport and back to the Metamore Hive. She was stopped by another member of Daniel and Victor's team, Callie Linder, a teenaged runner with supernaturally good luck. Callie caught Fiona in a spell trap and forced her to turn over the package at gunpoint. It's nothing personal, Callie assured her, 
but she needs the payoff from this mission to pay for food, her mom's medicine, and a safe place to sleep at night. Beyond that, Callie's not interested in debating the ethics of her work. She did do Fiona a small favor, however. When she called Victor to tell him that she'd recovered the package, she lied to him about Fiona, telling him that she'd fallen and broken her neck. That gave Fiona a chance to escape with her life, rather than waiting in Callie's spell trap until Victor showed up and murdered her. For Fiona, however, this was little comfort, as she grappled with how completely she had failed her friends and family. Making the Cut A novel of Metamore City Written and read by Chris Lester Chapter 12 Is there anything else you can tell us, Mr. Carlson? Daniel fidgeted in his chair and shifted the ice pack wondering if his head would ever stop throbbing. The police officers who sat opposite him were leaning forward with intent expressions, but so far neither of them seemed to have noticed that he was under a doppelcharm. Unlike a simple disguise amulet, a doppelcharm was an actual transmutation spell. The only way to tell if someone was wearing one was by using mage sight, and so far no mages had shown up to question him or the other dock workers. Mr. Carlson? He sighed. Sorry, no. I went over to check on Benny, and... I don't know how I ended up on the floor. Maybe I just fainted. Maybe he knocked me out. He shook his head. I guess it wasn't really Benny, huh? One of the police officers, a woman with short blonde hair, frowned and nodded. That's our theory. One of the other employees said he saw the suspect make the guns fly away from the other men on their own, which certainly sounds like a talent that Benny Chidomo didn't have. Daniel snorted. <laughs> yeah, I don't think Benny had nothing like that. Did you see or hear anything that might have told you where he was going? No, ma'am. Sorry. He looked up at her and frowned. So what was this all about, anyway? I thought those other guys were the thieves. But then Benny killed them and just ran off. The woman grimaced. We believe you got caught in the crossfire between two rival crime families. It was very dangerous for you to try to stop them like that. You should never attack a thief if he's armed, especially if you aren't. You ought to thank the Prophet you're still alive. Daniel hung his head and nodded. Yeah, I know. I guess I just wanted to do my job, you know? I don't like the idea of nobody stealing people's stuff. And then when they killed those guards... He shrugged. I just got so mad. That's understandable, the policewoman said. But stopping crooks is our job, not yours. There was a sound of stylish shoes snapping regularly against the concrete floor of the cargo bay. Daniel looked up to see Ava Salindi striding toward them, her face set in a calm but firm do-not-screw-with-me expression. She stopped a meter away and bowed stiffly toward the police officers. Pardon the intrusion, officers, she said briskly, but I have just received an urgent call from Mr. Carson's family. It seems that they saw the attack on the news and will not stop calling until they speak with their son. 
Not a problem, Miss Lindy, the officer said, rising to her feet. We were just finishing here. She pulled out a business card and passed it to Daniel. If you think of anything else, please give me a call, all right? Daniel nodded and stood. I hope you get him, he said, bowing to the officers. Then Ava took his arm and led him away, until they passed beyond the police tape and disappeared into the crowds of the skyport. You were very convincing, Ava said, as she ushered Daniel into a sleek, black skimmer that waited for them in the fourth-level parking garage. You looked as if you'd had some experience impersonating others before. Daniel shrugged and slid into the back seat alongside Ava. Comes with the territory, he said, sounding as numb as he felt. My people spend their whole lives pretending to be normal. Plus, I took some acting classes in college. He laughed once, but it sounded dead and hollow. Funny how the training comes back when you need it. The driver pulled the skimmer out into traffic and began heading south toward the point where Daniel would eventually be dropped off. A panel with a tinted glass window separated the front and back seats, granting Daniel and Ava a measure of privacy. Daniel pulled off the doppel charm and stared at it, while his body shifted back into its usual form. Ava leaned forward and caught his gaze, her violet eyes etched with concern. Daniel, what's wrong? The mission was a success, you know. Daniel looked away, adjusting his ice pack again. Callie got the package back then? Yes. She delivered it to our employer about twenty minutes ago. He reportedly was quite pleased. Why, you should be receiving payment in a matter of hours. Daniel nodded once. Great. That's great, Ava. She took his free hand in both of hers and squeezed it gently. As she did so, he felt the echoes of her emotions. Puzzlement, genuine concern, and empathy. Daniel, please, talk to me. What's troubling you? He let out a weary sigh, then looked at her directly. What's troubling me, Ava, is that four men died today for the sake of a box. What's troubling me is that two of them died after that box had already been stolen, just to feed the bloodlust of a man I finally realized is psychotic. He gripped her hand a little more tightly. What's troubling me is that I healed that psychopath and let him do what he did to those men. And finally, what's troubling me is that I'm pretty damned sure that those men were two of my own people. Several emotions ran through Ava at once, but the strongest among them were guilt and shame. Daniel narrowed his eyes at her. You knew, didn't you? He kept his voice quiet, but he couldn't keep the anger from leaking out around the edges. You knew that there were other spookies making a play for this thing, and you didn't tell me. She was surprised at that, and her eyes widened to reflect it. I thought you knew, she said, her tone disbelieving. Victor was supposed to brief everyone on the agents who were deemed likely to try intercepting the package. Telepaths, yes, but also mages, and mundane operatives from several factions. Anyone who seemed likely to want what our employer had. She shook her head slightly. I can't believe he didn't tell you. He had their dossiers for two weeks before the mission. Daniel raised his eyebrows again. It wasn't the words that surprised him. He wouldn't put any deception past Victor now. But the way she said them. 
In her distress, the Skywalker accent had vanished from her voice, leaving something else. Something closer to Daniel's own middle-class accent, but with foreign overtones that Daniel didn't recognize. Just another little deception, he thought sourly. His grip tightened further on her hand. Daniel, please, Ava said, her tone pleading. I swear I wouldn't have kept anything like this from you. I thought you were angry at your people like Victor was. He said you wanted out. I wouldn't try to trick someone into betraying their loyalties. Daniel couldn't quite read her thoughts, but her emotions indicated she was telling the truth. He relaxed his grip a little. All right, prove it. Tell me who we were working for. She reared back as if struck. Daniel, I can't. Anonymity was a strict part of the contract. Daniel tightened his grip on her hand again. He put down his ice pack and turned to face her, straightening up to his full height so that he was looking down on her. Sure, Ava could always shift back to Evan if she wanted to fight. The emotions Daniel was picking up from her, though, told him that she wanted him to trust her, and that she was willing to stay vulnerable in order to persuade him. He wasn't sure why she cared, but at the moment he intended to use it to his advantage. That's my price, Ava. You want me to trust you? You want me to see you as a decent person, instead of another manipulating skag like Victor? Then come clean with me. For my two dead brothers, if not for me. Ava winced at that. He felt her surrender a moment before she showed it, lowering her head and letting out a ragged breath. All right, she said. Just promise me you won't tell anyone who told you. He relaxed his hold on her hand again. I promise. Now who was it? She swallowed and took a breath before looking up at him. My contact was a man named William Westerson. It's not widely publicized, but he's a captain in the service of Malcolm Advalos. Ice water ran down Daniel's spine. It took him a moment to find his breath. Malcolm Advalos? The vampire prince of Metamore City? She nodded heavily. The same. Slowly, Daniel sank back into his seat. Pull over, he said softly. Ava looked out her window and frowned. We're still a long way from your place. I said pull over! Ava hurriedly grabbed the intercom and relayed the command of the driver. While he pulled off the highway and found a secluded parking lot, Daniel's mind raced. Malcolm Ardvalos, the kingpin of Metamore City, the Vampire Queen's right-hand man in the Imperial Capital, an investment analyst by trade, and the third richest citizen in the Empire, he spent his days as an advisor to a dozen different corporations and several influential non-profit groups. He was never quite at the top of any official chain of command, but he was also never far from the ears of those who ostensibly made the big decisions. To all appearances, he was untouchable, while word on the street often connected his name to crimes like blackmail, protection rackets, unlicensed prostitution, and drug running, no prosecutor had ever gathered enough solid evidence to take him down. The Hive considered him and his organization the number one threat to the safety of the collective in Metamore City. And now, Daniel was, however unofficially, a part of his payroll. 
To his credit, Daniel managed not to throw up until he was outside Ava's skimmer. But it was a very close thing indeed. May 28, 1995, CR The elder surveyed the small apartment with calm, impassive eyes, but her nostrils flared in distaste. I suppose that portraying this as a suicide is out of the question. Victor bowed his head in a show of deference. He didn't need to look around at the broken furniture, the toppled shelves, or the thousand bits of flotsam that had once been a man's treasured possessions. He'd been here when the destruction happened, and the place hadn't been all that impressive even before. I'm afraid not, Elder. When a rogue teak decides to resist arrest, the results can be somewhat... chaotic. I regret any inconvenience I have caused for the hive. The older telepath waved off the apology with one hand. She picked her way carefully through the apartment, the hem of her plain gray dress swirling around her knees. Victor admired her long, stocking-clad legs as she passed him. Though Miriam Bakhtavar was over a hundred years old, she was also one of the strongest egoists in the collective, and her psychometabolic powers had allowed her to retain the appearance and vitality of a twenty-five-year-old. Her glossy black hair was plaited into a braid that came down to the middle of her back, and her olive skin glowed with a healthy, unblemished complexion that women a third her age would have killed to possess. Victor had never noticed her beauty before, though he was certain he must have met her dozens of times. In truth, the elder's subtle telepathic manipulations usually made it difficult to remember anything about them, even their gender. He'd never noticed that before either, which just showed how powerful the elders were. No doubt they told themselves that it was a way for them to distance their personal identities from their role as the voice of the hive, to maintain the notion that the collective was a society without rulers. To Victor, it all seemed like just another mind game, one he was glad to be rid of. Bakhtavar passed through the living room and down the narrow hallway to the bathroom where Victor had finally ended the fight. The occupant had hoped to make use of the razor blades stored under the sink as a weapon against him, but Victor's telekinesis had proved stronger. The man's body lay slumped in the tub, drained white by the dozens of long, deep cuts that the whirling blades had opened across his flesh. The elder put her hands on her hips and sighed. Philippe Devereux, she pronounced, shaking her head slightly. So much talent, and all of it wasted. She cast a sidelong glance at Victor. You're certain he was responsible for the deaths at the Skyport? Yes, Elder, Victor said. I found a doppelcharm on his person that matches the appearance of the man who killed Matthews in Umbara. In addition, his personal computer contains the access codes for a numbered bank account. Three days ago, a sum of 150,000 marks was deposited into that account from an untraceable source. The vampires, no doubt, Bakhtivar said, nodding sadly. She knelt by the side of the tub and looked into the man's lifeless eyes. She reached out to his face with one hand, though she did not actually touch the body. Oh, Philippe, how could you do this? How could you betray your own family? Devereux was always a loner, Victor said gravely. 
He had no telepathic talent, so his direct participation in the collective was limited. And he did have a history of mental problems. Even a few arrests. But nothing like this, the elder insisted. He was just a troubled young man who needed help. Why he shunned our aid and went to the vampires is something I fear we shall never understand. Probably not, Victor agreed. Again, I apologize that I was unable to capture him for interrogation. The woman sighed again. Perhaps it is just as well, she said, getting to her feet and brushing off her knees. This entire affair was dangerously public. A quiet theft might have been ignored, given that the goods themselves were illegal. But murder at a skyport demands police involvement. This, at least, should satisfy them enough to prevent any further intrusions into our society. As you say, Elder. Victor bowed. Would you like me to have the apartment cleaned? Bakhtavar pursed her lips, her cool gray eyes narrowed in thought. Not entirely, she said at last. Remove all items of notable value and anything that might connect him back to the collective— then use a non-detection scroll to erase the evidence of our presence. The police will conclude that he was robbed by a band of rogue mages. It shall be done, Victor promised. He paused, then added, Elder, I would like to invoke the right of bounty. She arched one perfectly sculpted eyebrow. Victor put up a hand. I realize that anything we take will have to be destroyed to prevent a sympathetic trace back to the Collective but the numbered account hasn't been touched yet. If we wipe his hard drive, there's nothing to tie it back to Devereux. Bakhtavar seemed to consider that for a moment, then nodded. Very well, Victor. In exchange for finding the murderer and putting this matter to rest before the police could become involved, the right of bounty is granted. Philippe's blood money is yours to do with as you wish. Victor bowed again. Thank you, Elder. I am glad that my service has been of value to the hive. She gave him an odd look, then passed out of the room. He followed, and when they were at the front door, she paused and turned back to him. What is on your mind, Victor? she asked, looking concerned. You seem troubled. Oh, on the surface, you are certainly calm enough, but I look inside you and I see thoughts so scattered and fragmented that I can make no sense of them. She reached out and took his hand, a surprisingly tender gesture for an elder on business. Is there anything I can do to help? Victor lowered his head and sighed heavily. I'm sorry, elder. It's just the job. I've seen too much death over too many years. She squeezed his hand. What do you need? she asked. He looked up at her at the beautiful, elegant face that had been hidden for so many years behind a mask of telepathic fog. I need to get out, he said. Elder, I've been doing this for fifteen years. We both know that the Hive is never going to approve me as a breeding cell husband, not with all the blood on my hands. He shook his head slightly. After this job, I'm through. I'm taking Devereux's money and leaving active participation in the collective. I want to start a new life for myself. He shrugged. Maybe I can even find a little happiness. Bakhtavar looked regretful, but she nodded sympathetically. 
Your duties have led you down a harder path than most of us can imagine. We'll be sad to see you go, Victor, but we will not try to stop you. Participation in the Collective has always been voluntary, and whatever debts you might have owed to this hive are long since paid. She reached up and put a hand gently against his cheek. Wherever you go, I hope that you find peace to quiet the storm inside you. He bowed his head. As do I. Thank you for your understanding, Elder. May the Great Maker go with you. She drew back from him then, and they bowed to each other in parting. He used his telekinesis to open the door for her, and she nodded her thanks and left without another word. Smiling to himself, Victor went to the bedroom at the back of the apartment and opened it. The vampire was sitting at Devereaux's cluttered desk, looking through the man's collection of fetish magazines with an expression that suggested a mixture of fascination and disgust. His tailored gray business suit and perfectly styled hair were a stark contrast to the slovenly nature of his surroundings. She's gone, Victor said leaning back against the doorframe and crossing his arms. You heard? I did, the vampire said, setting down an issue of leather and lace and turning to face him. And what is your assessment of the product? Victor grinned. You're getting your money's worth. The old fool never had a clue that I was lying to her. The simple truth of that statement gave Victor a heady feeling of power like nothing he had ever known. He couldn't actually feel the nanopixies at work inside his brain, or the web of neural circuitry that they had constructed in parallel to the neurons of his cerebral cortex. It was strange. He would have thought that splitting his brain's electrical signals between neurons and wires would cause some kind of noticeable change in his conscious awareness. Apart from a nasty fever on the day the nanopixies were injected, though, nothing seemed to have changed. Nothing, that is, except for the fact that he was now immune to telepathic intrusion. A very small smile bent the corners of the vampire's mouth, and his pale blue eyes glinted. Excellent. Then our employees will be completely protected from mind-readers. Victor shrugged. The teeps will be able to pick up surface thoughts if they're strong enough, but memories and subsurface thoughts seem to be completely protected. I assume you already train your people to resist interrogation. Those same tactics should work well enough, now that the teeps are blocked from getting any deeper inside. The vampire rose to his feet. Mr. Ardvalos will be very pleased to hear that. Well done, Victor. Victor nodded and followed the man out of the room. Is there anything I should know about the circuitry? Will it wear out? What happens if it breaks? It will not wear out the vamp said, and the odds of it breaking are extraordinarily small. The NPs will scavenge your bloodstream for the necessary components to build and maintain the circuitry. The laboratory's technicians recommend taking regular mineral supplements, but you should not require any sort of external maintenance. Glad to hear it, Victor said. You said the odds of it breaking are extraordinarily small. What happens if it does break? Your higher brain functions have automatically expanded to use the additional bandwidth we have given you. Essentially, your cortex is becoming dependent on the neural circuitry to carry out its duties. The vampire shrugged. 
In the unlikely event that the circuitry is disrupted, you may experience some temporary loss of higher brain functions until your cortex reroutes the signals through your original neural pathways. The initial clinical trials in Algra suggest that the disruption will only last a few minutes at most. He smiled, showing a hint of his fangs. Really, though, as long as you stay away from lightning bolts and high-voltage power lines, you won't have anything to worry about. Victor chuckled. Hey, that's more than a fair trade-off for being psychically untouchable. He bowed to the vamp. Thank you again, Mr. Westerson. I'm glad we were able to do business. As am I, Westerson said, returning the bow. I shall leave you now to attend to your cleaning duties. Good luck to you in your new life. And if you're ever looking for further employment, please don't hesitate to call. The vampire left and Victor turned his attention back to the apartment, gathering up anything that a gang of unlicensed mages might consider worth stealing. He would take the goods to one of the enchanted waste disposal facilities on street level, which would eradicate any sympathetic traces that might be used to find them. It was drudgery, to be sure, but he consoled himself with the knowledge that it was the last necessary step on the road to his independence. He'd known from the beginning that he'd probably need a scapegoat for his actions at the Skyport, and Philippe Devereux had fit the profile perfectly. There might be people in the collective who would remember him, but no one would look at the matter closely enough to discover the inconsistencies. He might have been a strong telekinetic, but he had no telepathy, and was thus unimportant. Victor caught his reflection in a mirror and smiled. He had the money, and he had his freedom. Now he just had to get the girl, and it would be a perfect happy ending. And that's the end of Chapter 12. Come back next time, when Daniel gets called to the Summer Cell and discovers the consequences of his ill-gotten gains. Athel Fugard said, Love is the only energy I've ever used as a writer. I've never written out of anger, although anger has informed love. So, let's see what kind of energy I've channeled this week. Here's your weekly writing report. This update covers the week of January 9th through January 15th. I wrote 6,833 words this week, over the course of 9.75 hours, for an average writing speed of 701 words per hour. As of Friday night, I've gone 272 days without breaking my chain. This week I continued closing in on the end of Honor Bound. Honor and her reluctant ally, Delphinia, have gotten themselves out of danger and Honor has made an important bit of self-discovery in the process. Now she is nearly reunited with Natasha, but first she had to reckon with a different reunion, one that has been a long time in coming. I wasn't sure if I was going to include this moment in the book, but as the story came to its climax, and Natasha and Alex were looking for allies to aid in Honor's rescue, I realized that this brought a satisfying bit of closure to Honor's internal story arc. I'm now in chapter 41, and the manuscript is about 117,000 words. 
As I'm coming to the end of this story, I realize it's going to be quite a bit longer than I had intended. Because of this, I've decided to break it into three separate ebooks, corresponding roughly to the three acts of the story. My friend A.H. Lee did this with her romance novel, The Knight and the Necromancer, and it worked out very well for her. It gives you the chance to price the first volume low so more people are willing to try it. Then, if they like the story, they have two more volumes ready to buy immediately. That's extremely helpful for training the sales algorithms to show your book to more people, which is the key to long-term success in this business. Right now, those algorithms are convinced that Chris Lester is an author who doesn't sell well, so my books don't get shown to many people, which makes it a self-fulfilling prophecy. The L.C. Williams pen name is a chance for me to start fresh, and if I do it right, I think this is an opportunity to get my stories into a lot more hands. For the next few months, I've got some research to do. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And our Discord server is Metamore City. I'm there pretty often, so come say hi. If you like this show, please consider leaving a review at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Podchaser.com. It really helps people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fresh new fiction. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2021 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.